Today, another update from Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Gregory Poland. We'll discuss the science of the SARS coronavirus. How does the virus attack the body? The answer next on Mayo Clinic Q&A. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. We continue our coverage on COVID-19. As the disease spreads across the United States, we are still learning new information about the disease. Back with us again via Skype is Mayo Clinic infectious disease and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. You know, as we move uh, from the weekend, what, what are the major headlines that you would like to share with us that you think our listeners should be privy to? Yeah, I, well, I think a, a few things, uh, and I'll, I'll start at the, the sort of world level and work to the U.S. The, as of this morning, there are 735,000 known cases. That, of course, is the tip of the iceberg with almost 35,000 deaths now. Uh, Tony Fauci mentioned over the weekend that, you know, he estimates and the mo- it's really the modeling estimating that we may see somewhere between 100,000 to 200,000 deaths in the U.S. Right now, we have 143,000 known cases in the U.S. with 2,500 deaths. It's worth thinking about some of these things as this displays somewhat differential epidemiology in various places in the world. In Italy, for example, for reasons that one can speculate but not always clear, they've been much harder hit. In fact, 61 of the uh, Italian physicians responding to this crisis have died, 40 of them in that uh, uh, Lombardy uh, area. I think some good news is that uh, the end of this week, um, we should hear one of the first drug trials of 3,000 COVID patients where they've looked at remdesivir, Kaletra, hydroxychloroquine, and interferon uh, beta. We're also uh, beginning to see data from Houston and China on uh, plasma therapy, Um, so that is good. The other good news is uh, the FDA did give an emergency use authorization for an Abbott assay that gives results in about five to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they they think they can deploy about 50,000 of those tests uh, a day. Uh, maybe two other things that are new uh, in the in the on the medical side would be that uh, investigators at UCSF have identified eight different strain types of this COVID-19. Um, it mutates about eight to ten times slower than influenza, and thus far, none of the strain differences appear to have any different uh, clinical manifestations. And I think the other thing for our cardiology colleagues is it's it's beginning to be better understood that there are cardiovascular implications for COVID-19 in terms of myocarditis, uh, arrhythmias, and other manifestations of vascular inflammation. Wow. Wow. That is uh, scary uh, information regarding that. We, we hear a lot about peaks and for example, in, in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, their peak may be different to elsewhere in the, in the country. Can you explain to our listeners, what does that mean? And, and why is it different there, say, say, to elsewhere in the country? Yeah, um, th- this really is a function of, of time. And what's happening is that, uh, I think as expected, based on travel patterns, uh, demography, et cetera, our larger cities are where not only are people concentrated, but where the risk is concentrated. Mm-hmm. And so you see these almost like epicenters of disease that 
people then leave from. For example, uh, in New York, people have been fleeing there such hmm. that the governor of Florida has put in place rules about isolation and they're checking people's temperatures at the border. So trying to get a handle of this. And what will happen is that each of those sort of epicenters will then be the sources for people leaving and infecting other people all the way through, you know, middle America. So is this uh, is this um, something related to contact tracing? We heard about that this weekend. Yes, I, I think it's it's very definitely person to person spread. Um, and, and what's been difficult about this compared to SARS is it's quite evident that uh, people shed the virus asymptomatically, mm-hmm. unlike with SARS. And so it's very, very difficult. And really the only practical thing you can do, and, and certainly uh, you and I and other healthcare providers understand how difficult and disruptive this is, but social distancing is really the only thing that is going to dampen this down. And, and there is a really important and and I think hard for people to understand is the lag period. What we're seeing today, which is still on the exponential uprise, Mm -hmm. what we see today is a reflection of transmission that took place 14 to as long as 28 days ago. Okay. So it gives you an understanding going forward that we're going to really have to see that curve bend down and wait another month before sort of sounding the all clear. Well, so, so how are we doing in the United States about flattening that curve? Yeah, I, you know, in some cities, one gets the sense that it may be dropping a little bit, but you know, I'm really hesitant to make much of numbers over just a few days. I, I think it's pretty early yet to know. Yeah, yeah, this is sobering information. Um, you mentioned uh, about the risk of, for example, myocarditis. Uh, can you explain how SARS, uh, sorry, how the uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, virus makes people sick? How does it yeah. actually do that? So, uh, you know, if we look at that uh, cartoon of the virus behind you there, we see those little spike proteins, so-called S proteins. Mm-hmm. And you can think of that as a key And the lock is a receptor called the ACE2 receptor that's displayed on the outside of human cells, which includes the heart, the bladder, um, of course, the lungs, and and even the colon, uh, the GI tract. And that virus attaches like a key into that lock, unlocks it, gets into the cell. And then what this virus does is it takes over our own cells machinery and uses our own cellular machinery to make more of itself, more of the virus. Okay. And then literally, literally bursts that cell open and the virus freed to go and infect the next cell next to it. And, and just to give you a, uh, uh, an order of magnitude, I was talking with uh, one of our lab medicine colleagues. And they were, he was talking about the RT-PCR uh, assay we have, which has a lower limit of detection of about 5,000 copies. When they're testing patients, so imagine just taking a nasal swab or a throat swab, mm-hmm. there are hundreds of millions of copies detectable from that swab. I mean, it gives you an, 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 yeah. a, a sense of the enormity of the infection and the burden of that inflammation on the body. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And so you, you mentioned about the burden of disease. Initially, it, we were told that coronavirus had a preponderance for pay, for people who are older with medical comorbidities, but now we're seeing younger people are being affected. Do you, do you know why that is? Yeah, so uh, we, we definitely see older people and younger people who have comorbidities having higher case fatality rates. What is unclear is why age alone seems to be such a strong driver. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what we don't have very granular data yet is, is it at the population that you're 60 or 70, or is it that, okay, you're 60 or 70, but you've got heart disease, hypertension, diabetes. So what about the very fit, you know, sprint triathlon 70-year-old? Sure. Um, sure. They appear to be having... Uh, illness, but are they having the same case fatality rate? In the younger people, we certainly do see serious illness, but much less in the way of of uh, fatality, fortunately. Thank, thank God. Thank goodness. Now, yeah. you, you mentioned about the virus mutating. If you've had coronavirus and you're, you've been asymptomatic or you recover from it, what is your the risk to you down the road? Do, do we know that information? Yeah, that's a it's a really insightful question and a, and a key one, because, of course, we'd like to know that somebody's no longer at risk. And, and on the healthcare side, we'd like to know that that person could be deployed and be used on the front line, so to speak, without risk. The problem is we don't know that mm-hmm. we will soon know and be able to do serology mm. where we can test for that antibody. Granted, we don't know the correlative protection, so what level of antibody? There are also differences in inoculum size. So, for example, um, a layperson walking in the grocery store next to somebody that might be infected has a lower inhaled inoculum size than, say, an anesthesiologist who's trying to intubate or a pulmonologist who's doing a bronchoscopy where that that load, were they not taking precautions, would be would be quite high. The, the other thing that we do have some data, this is uh, fairly new data, if you look as long as six years out in patients who had SARS in 2003, they appeared to maintain uh, high enough antibody levels. Okay. By six years, that dropped off. So that's one point of data. The other point of data is in the seasonal coronaviruses, that immunity appears to only last a few months to a year. So, you know, here they are. They're all coronaviruses. They're all beta coronaviruses acting differently in the immune system. So as as I try to point out to people, one has to realize that with this particular strain, our expertise only extends 12 weeks. Wow. Wow. So a lot to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you earlier mentioned about um, some data coming out about the trials, and you mentioned plasmapheresis. Can yeah. you just uh, educate us a little bit about what plasmapheresis is? Yeah, thank you uh, for that question, because I think it's one of the uh, uh, more rapid things we could deploy. So the idea here is that you would take blood, you'd plasmapherese off plasma, which contains immunoglobulin, so it's polyclonal, but you're taking off antibodies or immunoglobulins from somebody who has recovered from the disease mm-hmm. and then transfusing that into somebody else. The, the issues with that are, are several fold. One is you might get a dose, maybe two doses 
from a recovered patient that could be used in another person per time that you plasmapherese them. So it, it's not going to be a huge source. Okay. The, the, the other thing is it's being used under emergency use authorization. So generally in people late in the course of disease. Now, there has been some data that got published Friday in JAMA, uh, Friday night, as we were talking about earlier. <laughs> and, and it seemed to show some potential benefit, but you really don't know until you do a clinical trial. I personally think it's going to have to be deployed earlier in the in the course of disease but likely we'll have some efficacy at any point and and i think we're going to have to follow along to see how long is somebody protected that's passive immunity that will wane with time oh i see okay as a healthcare worker yourself and, and, and myself and we we've seen it now more and more healthcare workers are obviously at the front line and uh but they have lives to lead they have families to lead uh and they go home how should they be protecting their families? Yeah, I, I get a lot of those questions, uh, and, I, and I, of course, have great empathy for them. I, I would say several things. The ideal thing, we're talking about frontline healthcare workers, the ideal thing is that you wear scrubs and a lab coat, and uh, you put those on when you come into the facility, you take them off when you go out of the facility, and you don't wear those clothes home. Mm -hmm. Number two, something I know some of my colleagues didn't think of, there's no reason to take your stethoscope home with you. Your stethoscope is something that you ought to be cleaning between patients anyway. You know, we have the tradition of wearing a coat and tie as you and I are right now. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want your tie trailing onto the patient and then going to the next patient. Not that I know that that's any kind of valid way of transmission, but we know that viruses and bacteria are harbored mm -hmm. uh, on our clothing. The other thing, and, and you cannot emphasize it enough, is high quality hand sanitizing. You really do not only have to use hand rub between patients, but you've got to wash your hands well before you go home. You're, you're a surgeon, and surgeons and infection control people are the only people I've ever seen wash their hands properly. And when you think about it, you know, we tend to concentrate on our, our palms in the lower third of the digits, but that's not what goes in your eyes, nose, and mouth. It's your fingertips. Yeah. Um, and people ignore that. So uh, that's really important to do. Yeah, well, thank you for those tips because obviously, you know, we want to take care of our patients, but we also want to take care of our colleagues as well. And if we don't have healthy colleagues, we can't take care of patients. So thank you for those top tips. Uh, I, I guess the other thing that goes without saying is obviously if you develop cough, fever, something like that, I, I probably would not go home. I'd find some alternative uh, living situation if I knew I was infected uh, before returning home. Yeah, that's uh, we thought about that. That's sometimes easier said than done, but yeah. but, but but you're absolutely right. So this is just Monday, and everything uh, changes with time. What are you anticipating this this week? If you look in your crystal ball, yeah. Well, you know, interesting. You say that. I, I've remarked to family and friends that I have renewed sympathy for the weatherman. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I think we can accurately say is the following. Um, we are not at the peak yet, so we're going to continue to see an increase in cases in our major cities with spillover beginning into the 
uh, uh, Midwestern and uh, Southeastern states, and they will then begin to be uh, epicenters. I think we'll begin to see um, uh, testing become more widely available. I think, as I mentioned, by the end of the week, we'll have a little more clear data if this study from France that's been coordinated out of France uh, releases their data by Friday, as they say they will. We'll, we'll have a little more clarity on possible uh, routes of, uh, of treatment. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, I didn't mention this. One other hopeful piece of news, this won't happen this week, but by September, Johnson & Johnson is going to be starting uh, a phase one trial of another COVID-19 vaccine. And mm -hmm. I, think we'll, I think we'll see others. So, you know, in, in many ways, when you think about this compared to any other time in human history, it is remarkable. It's astounding how much has happened in 12 weeks. Uh, do, we, do we all wish it could be yesterday? Uh, of course, but mm -hmm. this, is, this is unprecedented in every way. The, the U.S., um, I think, really did take seriously uh, preparation, and they're doing pretty well. I, I know at Mayo Clinic, while you always wish you had more, uh, in the way of resources. Mayo also took this uh, seriously and has done a bang-up job in preparedness. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you see adversity and then you see the human spirit come through in the innovation, not just at Mayo Clinic, but around the world and people collectively coming together, I think that, that's a pause for, for hope uh, that we'll get through this. You know, one, one other thing, if I can just mention a brief history, because it has uh, after 9-11, there were a lot of surveys saying that in a bio event, there was a lot of concern that healthcare workers might not come to work. Um, and I think clearly you and I have seen just the opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, the magnanimous sacrifice on the part of our brothers and sisters who are, are every day much closer to it than I am. I, I get uh, a teaching role, but you know, those that are intubating somebody at the bedside. I mean, unbelievable the hours they're working and the, the risks that they're taking on behalf of patients. And I, I, I at one level, I want to say, you know, bravo, we have lived and we've all, you know, basically taken the pledge, simple seven words, the needs of the patient come first. Mm -hmm. And they're really living that. And, you know, historically, in 1918, Mayo was one of the first medical centers to buy, it was a hotel, but set up a hospital outside of St. Mary's, which they called the Contagion Hospital. Mm -hmm. And uh, the nurses, they were all sisters at that time. One after another, it is recorded in our archives that they would catch the, the pandemic influenza and die. And the next nurse and the next doctor would pick up the stethoscope and go in there and take care of patients. Yeah, well said, Dr. Poland, and thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, our thanks to Mayo Clinic infectious disease and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. As always, great information to help our listeners better understand the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks, Dr. Poland, and stay well. Thank you. You too. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic continues. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. This Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast was recorded on March 30th.